I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Story For a few years in my early 20s, I was living on the East Coast. My area ran right along the Blue Ridge Mountains, and I'd often go on short day hikes with a few friends along the marked paths in the afternoons when we were all free. A few times I'd gone alone, but I always kept to the same few areas and knew my way around well. On this particular day I'd waited a little later into the afternoon for my friends so we could go up the trails, but they ended up busy and I, feeling fat after a whole pizza for lunch with soda, decided to get in the car and go hike it off by myself to ease my guilty conscience. There's some particular trails I like to use, they shoot you straight up an incline to get your cardio in quick and hard, and then an adjoining, smaller path winds you back down around the other side of the face. About a third of the way down, there's trees to the right and a steepish hill on the left that drops down to a low spot where I could usually spot deer herds and fun stuff. I struggled going up that day, and I'd waited later than usual, so it was probably close to 7 to 7.10 pm by the time I reached the fork and turned back downhill. Mid-fall, this meant it was fairly dark by that time. As I'm walking, I notice a person in the valley. She had on a long, pinky white dress and by the way she was changing positions and shuffling around, it looked like she was in the middle of a photo shoot. I couldn't see the photographer, and it was a little late for photos, but I figured the camera person was probably in the tree line and that they were likely finishing up after golden hour. I stopped to watch for a second, thinking how great a spot it was for some really awesome pictures. All of a sudden it was as if she fell. She didn't lower herself, there was no crouching or sitting motion, it was more like watching a glitch in real life, she was standing, and then she was face down on the ground with her legs bent up under her body. I got this really awful feeling all of a sudden, like shivers down my neck. Without taking my eyes off her, she started crawling on all fours right up the hill towards the trail I was on. She wasn't on her knees though, she was basically running on her hands and feet. Maybe I was just freaked out, but she was closing in far faster than it seemed like she should have been. It was almost like she'd been sped up, but the rest of the world was still moving by just the same. I wish I could say I'd pulled my phone out and gotten video evidence, or at least taken a picture, or been brave and kicked some spooky ass, but I was suddenly overcome with an intense feeling of danger and I fell ran the rest of the way back to the parking lot without looking back even once. I peeled out of there and haven't gone back since. The weirdest part is that my car had been the only one in the lot when I got back to it, and that area isn't super accessible by any other park and hike type trailheads that I know of. I wrote it off as crazy drugs and nothing more, but I don't know. I told my friends, and a few of them went out later that night to investigate, Super duper smart idea, I know, but nobody has even seen anything like that out there since. In 
In the summer of 2014, I was driving around the lake roads of Vilas County in northern Wisconsin with a friend, late at night. We come up to this white owl sitting in the middle of the road. I might have thought nothing of it, except that it didn't move. I stopped my car in front of it, tried honking, and flashing my lights, and it just stared us down. So I crept around it. We get up the road about two miles more and turn a corner. There in the middle of the road is this really long, slender, white figure sprawled out, taking up nearly the entire span of the street. My friend and I freaked out, I swear she even yelled, alien? From a distance, it did distinctly look like a humanoid figure, with a notable shoulder formation and limbs. So I drive up a little closer to it, and it becomes clear that the thing is another white owl, with its wings spread out like it is dead or taking a defensive posture. I'm not sure. I had to drive partly in the grass to get around it. The whole time my friend freaked out, go, 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 let's get back into town. Looking back there are definitely a couple strange things about that incident other than the weird coincidence of seeing two white owls behaving strangely out there, in a region where white owls aren't that common. The first weird thing is that the way the figure appeared to us from a distance was so different from what it became when we got up close. My brain doesn't really like processing it. The other weird thing is that the figure was so long. I don't think that any owl has a wingspan as long as this wingspan would have had to be for it to take up the entire road like that. Then about three weeks later I was with two different friends, driving around again. I had my window down and a white owl swooped down from the trees. You could see it leaving the trees from the front windshield, but there was no time to react before it nearly flew into my open window. I remember seeing its face there, like inches from mine in that split second before it veered back up. This was shortly before I developed really bad anxiety for the first time. I got home one night that summer after I'd been out pretty late, and I had a sore throat. So I looked in the mirror, and in the back of my throat, on the wall just past the uvula was a hole, about the size of a pencil eraser. It was a very perfect shape, and it had smooth edges like it wasn't a wound. There was no pus around it, no bleeding. It made no sense at all. I understandably freaked out, rushed in, and made my mom look, I was about 18, still living with my mom. She didn't believe me at first, but then I remember seeing the look on her face go from skepticism to horror when she actually peered inside my mouth. But when we got to the hospital, whatever had been wrong with my throat was fixed. There was no evidence that a hole had ever been back there, aside from my mom and I both insisting there was. The doctor basically treated us both like we were crazy and said it was physically impossible for there to be a disappearing hole in the mouth. After that, I had horrible anxiety for years. I quit smoking and developed an OCD-like obsession with washing my hands and checking my throat. That mystery was never solved, and it's honestly a really horrible moment in my life that's taken me years to come to terms with. Do you believe that the white owls were harbingers and, or the cause of the strange incidents? I recall, almost word for word, the telephone call which had informed me that Lainey had disappeared, her teacher, calm, unbearable, all saccharine platitudes and reassurance, my own voice fraught and strangled with an instant and instinctual panic. At that time I had only just emerged, inwardly bruised and outwardly haggard, from a two-year custody battle with my ex-husband, who had dogged me through the courts not out of any particular interest in Lainey, whom he had always handled with a stranger's cold unfeeling, but to harangue me to the point I felt half mad, my penance for refusing to yield to the man's more violent torments. Our daughter was the only beautiful thing that I had gleaned from our decade together, and I cleaved to her, my prize, my love, with such ferocity that each time I dropped her off at school in the morning I would sit in the parking lot and shake with a passionate dread of anything happening to her in the hours she was not in my care. All parents know the power of imagined horrors, the kidnapper idling on every corner in the sinister white shell of a van, the teacher alone in a vacant classroom, 
the husband with quick and vicious fists loitering at the school gates to whisk the unwitting child away. All these things and more cavorted my mind in a grim and raucous glee as I answered the call from Laney's teacher, knowing with the psychic sureness of any mother that something was wrong. It's all right, Miss Cameron, said Miss Paxton, whom I'd always found to be an insipid and distinctly useless character. I'm sure Laney just wandered off and got a little confused trying to find her way back to the group. The park rangers are all out looking for her. I'm sure she'll be found in no time at all. It was all I could do not to scream a dozen accusatory questions down the line. How could you lose her? Isn't it your job to take care of the class? Don't you know that there are savage animals, and deep water, and steep drops out there in the wilderness? Haven't you thought about that the way I have, agonized like I have, suffered and yearned to save the innocent from all the colors of horror in the world? She's only 10 years old, for God's sake, I snapped, through gritted teeth. She must be terrified. Yet even as I said it I knew the most dangerous thing was that Laney wouldn't be frightened at all. She had always been a placid, adventurous child, undeterred from her exploratory whims by scratches and bruises nor by being separated from me, or any other guardian. I recall losing her in a shopping mall at the heights of the festive season, finding her, after three hours of tearful searching, by a water fountain, tossing nickels she'd found in one lint-filled pocket down into the verdigris depths. Hi, Mom, Laney had said, her blonde eyebrows raised with a cool, adult surprise at my distress. I'm making a wish. Think it'll come true? Through luck and my meticulous care nothing truly terrible had ever happened to my daughter. No wonder, then, that she could not conceive of herself at the center of such an event. Disaster was, to Laney, a distant fairy tale, the Rumpelstiltskin that only came for other children, of another time. Yet these ills had indeed now taken her, and as I languished by the phone awaiting another call I pictured a thousand scenarios each more sickening than the last. It didn't help matters that the national park in which Laney had disappeared was notorious for missing persons reports and other unsavory incidents, many of which were quietly suppressed from local news. I had, of course, vehemently opposed the school's decision to include a visit to the area as part of the new curriculum, appalled to find myself bullied into acquiescence by principal and board alike. Thus, Upon finding my neurosis vindicated, I could only logically assume that my grislier fantasies would be confirmed in a like fashion. I was no retentive paranoiac, the hysteric archetype of the crumbling woman. Looking back, I might argue my suspicions were but pangs of psionic foresight, a sense that would step forth from shadowed peripheries in the following days, and make itself their heart. Smoking cigarette after cigarette in fractious helplessness I envisioned, Darkly, the face of Laney's father upon receiving the news of her death, like the mask of some malevolent pagan god. He'd sup greedily from the liquor of my grief, the denouement of his daughter's existence nothing to him but a tool to eviscerate a reaction from me. Then, suddenly, the phone rang again, causing me to jump so violently that I spilled ash down the front of my dress. Good news, Miss Cameron. Laney turned up and she's just fine. I pressed a hand to my mouth, unsure whether I was going to vomit or burst into tears. What happened? I asked. Where did you find her? There was an odd little laugh on the other end of the line. Well, it's sort of strange, said Miss Paxton. One of the rangers found her at the bottom of a seven-foot hole in a meadow, it looked to be a burrow of some kind. Lord knows what made it. Laney must have just fallen in by accident. We've looked her over, and luckily she doesn't have even a scratch on her. If you'd like to pick her up she's fine to go home. As I said, she's not injured, just a little shaken up, is all. I got into my car and drove the hour-long journey to the park, so soaked in the adrenaline of relief that I was like a dreamer, watching my white hands curl in spidering husks upon the wheel. When I pulled up to the park ranger's station an officer was loitering out front beside Miss Paxton, who was holding the hand of a small blonde child with a firmness that suggested it might run away from her the moment she let go. The little figure stood with its back to me, 
short-haired and androgynous as an elf, staring off into the forest, as though watching something move in the trees. The other kids milled about nearby, their eyes flat and aloof. I noticed they gave the light-haired child a wide berth, which, had it been Laney, would have been strikingly unusual, being that she made friends easily, and was close to a group of five other girls in her class. Not one of them looked at or spoke to her, loitering at the vertices of the clearing, whispering amongst themselves as I got out of the car I saw the blonde child twist at Miss Paxton's arm, attempting to dislodge itself and wander off into the woods. Although the hair was right, and it was wearing a similar outfit to that which I'd set out for Laney that morning, nothing in its body language was reminiscent of my daughter, whose loose-shouldered, tomboyish posture I would have recognized at once. Was there some mistake? Had this idiot of a teacher somehow confused Laney with some other, unknown child? Miss Paxton turned towards me with a welcoming smile, which wavered as she caught my expression. The thin little child stranger swiveled awkwardly on her arm, still wanting to go in the other direction. Laney, said the teacher, brightly. Look. Your mom's here. She spoke as she might to an infant, and from this I gleaned there was something amiss she hadn't deigned to tell me over the phone. Pressing a hand to the small of the child's back, she ushered it forwards, and at last its face turned towards me, no more familiar than its posture had been. I suppose the girl looked enough like Laney that anyone might mistake them at a passing glance, but that was all. This child's eyes were spaced further apart, the mouth small and cruel, the nose thinner, and missing the aquiline shape she inherited from me, it was as though Laney's own face had been drawn from memory, and a poor one at that. Cousins they could easily be, but the same child they were not and I was amazed that the teacher that saw her five days a week could possibly think them identical. It was as I glanced up into the young woman's shifting eyes behind her glasses that I realized she didn't believe it, not really. Now it seems to me that what she perceived was so beyond her understanding that she had simply elected to place her trust in the most logical explanation, yet not the correct one. Then, however, I merely assumed that she was lying to me for some nefarious purpose, and found myself coolly unsurprised. The world had always seemed set against me and my daughter, why, then, would the person entrusted to care for my only child be any different? What is this? I asked, harshly. Where's Laney? Miss Paxton's face drained of color, and she stammered through a few brittle sentence starters, unable to finish even one. The girl that wasn't my daughter twitched and fussed in her grip, her pale eyes as indifferent to my presence as the sea to the swimmer it drowns. I was both repelled and fascinated by her, this tiny usurper held against her will. Miss Cameron, said the ranger. Talk with me in the station a second. She was a thin, short-haired woman, hard with corded muscle, and speaking in the sharp, almost Germanic accent that was common to some of the nearby towns. I wanted to refuse the ranger's offer, rally angrily against her with all the obstinance my fear and anguish could lend me. But in the end I went after her, looking back over my shoulder at the unfamiliar child, who flinched and jolted at the end of the school teacher's arm like a condemned man in a rain of artillerant fire. The ranger, whose name was Diane Becker, sat me down in a rickety chair and brewed me a cup of coffee so black that I almost retched at the first swig. Who is that kid out there? I asked. She isn't my daughter. Was it you that found her? My colleague, said Becker, flatly. She's off shift. I'll get you her number if you want to talk to her. But anyway, I was there when Mel brought the kid back to the station. Had this with her. The teacher recognized it. The ranger picked up a purple, rainbow print backpack from a nearby desk and pushed it towards me, Watching blandly as I touched the name tag and ferreted through the contents, the workbooks with their untidy handwriting, the uneaten packed lunch, the pencil case, whose utensils were all nibbled surreptitiously at their ends. It's your daughter's? Asked Becker, with the intonation of a statement. Yes, I said, reluctantly. But it doesn't matter. That girl out there? I've never seen her before in my life. Laney is still missing. Becker regarded me without expression. 
So you're saying a kid turned up with your daughter's description, wearing her clothes, carrying her stuff. But it ain't your daughter? I knew how it sounded, but hearing it echoed back in that detached monotone made me want to scream out in frustration. Instead I pulled my cell phone from my pocket and shoved it at Becker, stabbing my finger at photographs and video clips of Laney as the ranger looked on with cool, dispassionate eyes. Look, I said. That's my baby. That's what she looks like. That's her face. That girl your colleague picked up, they're not the same, can't you see that? And the kids in Laney's class, none of them know who she is, either. Why are you lying to me? What's going on? But Becker only shrugged, her weathered face an impenetrable slab. I don't know what to tell you, ma'am, she said. I'm not seeing the difference. I pinched the bridge of my nose, holding back the threatened tears. I'm not crazy, okay? There's been some kind of mix-up. That girl's parents are probably frantic, looking for her. Becker shrugged. Haven't heard anything about that. Only missing kid this week is yours. The helplessness I felt as I stared at the ranger was of such intensity that my vision swam like a desert heat at the edges, a white and crystalline blindness. Becker clearly noticed something amiss in my face, for she shoved the cooling coffee cup towards me and placed a coarse palm on my shoulder. If you think something's wrong maybe you ought to take the kid to a doctor, she said, gently. Get her looked over, you know? Likely Becker thought me unstable, in shock, caught up in the sort of excitement that would die down in a day or two. There was nothing I could say to prove or defend myself, I saw that clearly. I stood up from the table, seizing Laney's backpack in a wretched burst of anger. She is not my daughter, I said, again. When I get to the bottom of this you'll hear about it, make no mistake. For all my bluster I was hyperventilating as I shoved my way back out into the clearing again, every breath sawing up through my side like an animal bite. I don't remember how I went from this pitiful state to sitting with a strange child in the back of the car, driving mechanically along the road, I only recall staring at the little creature in the rear view mirror, looking desperately for something of Laney in its pale, furtive eyes, its twitching person, finding nothing. There was no recognition in the sharp little features, no understanding of where it was, or what it was doing. I saw it wrestle with the seatbelt like a dog against its collar, put one grubby hand against the passenger window, as though expecting it to slip right through into the air beyond. I couldn't fathom where so wild and capricious and unthinking a child might have sprung from, and despaired that through the stupidity of others it had been thrust upon me. Through a great amount of wheedling and pressure I was able to wrangle an emergency checkup appointment with Laney's pediatrician, a weary middle-aged woman who'd handled my daughter's case so many times over the past five years I had no doubt that she, at least, would recognize the grave mistake that had been made when I presented her with a little stranger. It was a trial cajoling the child out of the car into the doctor's office. It only glared with a beady, crow-like malice and attempted to dart past me, prevented only by my hand at its elbow. The arm was all sinew and bone beneath its jacket, soft as twigs under wet leaves, I gave a short cry of disgust, and forced myself to cling on, lest the child flee across the parking lot and into the busy road. While not Laney, it was a little girl, and my maternal instinct to protect life still remained. I kept the stranger close to my side as I pushed it through the office door, wrinkling my nose at the scent of dirt and wet grass that lingered on the child's hair and clothes. I'm not sure what I anticipated upon presenting it to Dr. Maddox, arched eyebrows, perhaps, asking where Laney was, if I was caring for a young relative for the day. Yet there was no such surprise, only the usual greeting and tepid professionalism with which she carried out every appointment. As per my request she enacted a full-body examination, including of the teeth, I had some notion, from true crime media, that the identity of the stranger might be unearthed that way. The child was obstinate throughout, not with aggression so much as an aversion to touch, writhing about with a lithe, ferrety determination. I dithered, unsure whether to feel embarrassed or disconcerted. The doctor seemed unsurprised by the display, however, 
going about her work with prosaic method. Only when the child was allowed to slip from the examination table and hunch, all elbows and knees, in one corner did Dr. Maddox take me aside for a hushed conversation. Miss Cameron, why did you bring Laney in to see me today? She asked, in tones of brittle neutrality. The truth would sound akin to madness. Aware of this, I only said, I was wondering if you'd noticed a physical difference in Laney, since you last saw her. Dr. Maddox glanced at the child, who stared out of a nearby window, observing a small bird cleaning its wings in a tree. It's not her physical health that worries me, she said. The behavioral changes, however, the mutism, the restlessness. I have to ask, has anything new happened at home? This being a delicate, euphemistic reference to the divorce, to Laney's father. Not at home, no, I said, carefully. Earlier today there was an incident on a school trip. Laney wandered off, had some kind of accident. She's been like this since then. Not talking, doesn't respond to anything I or anyone else says. She's totally changed. It doesn't make sense. Dr. Maddox made a sound of gentle understanding, and in it I lost all hope of support, of being heard, sometimes it's the little things that trigger a reaction that's built up from earlier incidents, she said. A delayed reaction. It may seem sudden, but all things considered it makes sense. I can recommend a psychologist to look into this better than I can. I imagine the child crouching, silent and unpleasant as a hobgoblin, while I was pressured into lying to another clueless professional. No, I said. No, thank you. Not today. Ignoring the concern in Dr. Maddox's eyes, I turned to the stranger we were pretending was Laney. Inexplicably it struck me that perhaps it was not even a child at all an unsettling thought, bidden from the oddness and mystery of the circumstances, yet one that lingered, all the same. Come on, I said to it, in a hoarse voice. The child's head twitched, but it only continued its watch of the window, its thin mouth slightly ajar. Then, as I reached towards it the head turned, and I thought for one hideous moment that it was going to bite my arm with its perfect little teeth. I froze, not knowing what to do, too frightened and too appalled by the thought to strike it, too stunned to move away. At last the child stood, and when I stepped towards the door it followed, allowing me, with a short twitch, to take its clammy hand, little though I wanted to. It was in the parking lot that I had my first truly unkind thought towards the stranger. Not of harming it, merely of leaving the child there, where it would be found, and driving away. But I knew it was impossible. I'd be arrested for child abandonment and endangerment, institutionalized, perhaps. There would be no end to my accountability, for I could not defend myself when the only other being that might have spoken in my favor had uttered not one word, nor seemed remotely capable of doing so. So it was that I took the little stranger home, feeling more resentful of her presence, of her replacing Laney, with every passing minute. I ended up cooking something for dinner with the stiff, mindless process of an automaton, caring little whether or not the child would like what I set on its plate. It would neither sit at the table nor consider the cutlery, squatting behind one of the chairs to look at me through the slats, its face spliced into irregular oblongs by each wooden spoke. The effect of this was that I could imagine even less how the individual pieces could ever come together to resemble Laney's features, each of an unnatural difference from hers. Who are you? I hissed, across the now jellied dinner. Where is my daughter? Why are you here, and not her? The child slid away from the chair and against the back door, scuffling like a hound plagued by worms. All right, I said, sharply, standing up from my place with a screech of chair legs upon tiles. Go outside. Play. Something. I unlocked the door and ushered the stranger out across the backyard, relieved that it went out without event, allowing me my first moment alone. The inescapable bind of my situation overwhelmed me, and again I collapsed into my chair, leaden as a coin dropped into some fathomless well. I miss Laney terribly, thinking forlornly what a beautiful, simple afternoon it would be if she were still here, 
kicking her dirty sneakers off under the table with a sighing affectation of grown-up tiredness. She would have shown me a rock or flower she'd found on her trip, which I would pretend a dutiful fascination in, and cleared her plate of food in 15 minutes before managing to thieve a double helping from my own, her boyish, playful irreverence overshadowing the very light in the room. Remembering her hammered home ever plainly that the creature I'd brought back from the park was not Laney, and as I stood up to look at the girl from the kitchen window I wondered, with a twisting repulsion, what sort of parents had managed to raise such offspring. A light rain had fallen, unperturbed, the child knelt at the edge of a flower bed, digging with both hands in the wet soil. Hey, I said, sharply. What are you doing? As I stepped outside, one arm raised to shield my hair from the rain, I saw that a number of worms and other insects were churning about in the dirt, as though the child's very digging had drawn them up, like a seagull's dance. Disconcerted, I leant down to pull the girl away, then stopped, a guttural cry jarring my chest. The child was shoveling handfuls of the infested soil into its mouth, stones, weeds, and clods of earth alike vanishing into the greedy pit of its throat. Brown and bloody spittle hung from the thin lips in swinging strands, and I was horribly amazed that the little white teeth did not break as they ground down on grit and decorative pebbles. No. I snarled, and with a feat of strength I didn't know I possessed I hoisted the squirming beast under one armpit and carried it back into the house, up to the bathroom. The chaos of undressing the stranger and thrusting its pale body under the shower head was like a scene from some Victorian asylum although conducted in an uncanny, scuffling silence that perturbed me more than if the child had screamed. I let go of it and leant, panting with exertion, against the bathroom wall, wondering grimly why I had bothered, why I was still engaging with any of this. The child looked balefully at me from under a sodden cap of yellow hair, its cut mouth still. My eyes rooted to its pale ears, nudging from behind dripping fronds, their tips were sharp, like white flint, unfamiliar. Another wrongness, another indicator that the girl wasn't mine. Still, I deposited it in Laney's bedroom for the night, there being no other space in the small house in which to have it sleep. It turned my stomach to think of the feral, silent child touching my daughter's things, leaving its damp scent on her stuffed animals, her pillows, the sheets. Twitching and unsettled by every perceived sound from Laney's room, I imagined the child gnawing at the walls and crawling through them like a rat, or sickness in a dying tree. I tossed and turned until my pillow was flat and my hair tousled upright. In the end I withdrew the cigarette carton I kept hidden at the back of my sock drawer and smoked to the end of the pack. When morning came, white and sore as a scar, I went to Laney's room and opened the door slowly, poised to dart back should the child leap at me. Although it hadn't yet expressed any particular violence, outside its outbursts on contact, I well suspected an unprovoked attack would soon come. As daylight scythed through the doorway I saw that, while the bed was empty, Laney's quilts had been pulled down between the headboard and the wall into a sort of nest. The blankets stirred, and a tiny spindle-fingered hand emerged, parting the blankets to reveal a pale eye, squinting at the light. There was only the barest recognition there, as of the pet of an acquaintance that has encountered you once or twice, and briefly at that. I felt suddenly a foreigner in my own home, alienated by the invader. I got the child dressed in Laney's clothes as quickly as I was able and dropped it at the school gates, half hoping that it would take off into the street and become lost indefinitely, unshackling me from its burden. Clinging to that dream, I drove off, glancing back over my shoulder to see the ugly little stick figure with its naked eyes, standing apart from the other students, insidious and strange. For the first time I was glad of my doldrums office job, numbing my sadness and the lingering dread of the cuckoo child I'd been saddled with through work. I would gladly have chained myself to my laptop for reprieve, so rapidly had all sense and perspective left me in my turmoil. How comforting the beetle drone of the machine was to me, then, the aseptic screen, and its endless figures, and their utter absence of meaning. A telephone call came, striking me from this drab comfort like a sudden fall in a dream. Who was it to be? 
Miss Paxton? My ex-husband, poised to gloat? Mr. Cameron? A voice asked, youthful, wavering, as I hesitantly picked up the receiver. It's me, I said, blandly. Who is this? Excuse me, my name is Melanie Hale. I'm a volunteer at the National Park, Diane passed on your contact details. I was the one that brought your daughter in yesterday. Are you free to talk? Diane thought you might want to clear up some details with me. Diane, I repeated, suddenly alert. Becker. Yes, I remember her. She was pretty dismissive of my concerns, to be honest. I heard the younger woman swallow uncomfortably. I'm sorry about that. She just has a different way of dealing with the public. I think she appreciated your situation, but, well, it's tricky. Unimpressed by her rambling, I said, in what way? Miss Hale, Melanie? I'm certain you've given me the wrong child, and I don't have a scrap of proof. If there's anything you can tell me that would help me, I'd be grateful. There was another awkward pause before the volunteer answered. It's difficult to explain without an intimate knowledge of the park. I've been here three years and still it, surprises me. I found your daughter in a meadow by our biggest lake. You probably heard she'd fallen down an animal burrow of some kind. How tired I was of the same story, which I little believed. Well, said Melanie. The thing is, we don't have any animals in the park capable of digging a burrow that large, and it certainly wasn't man-made. That rang some alarm bells with me, and probably with Diane, too, but she would never bring this up with an outsider, unfortunately. A coldness ran across my shoulder blades like a shadow. I didn't like the halting nervousness in Melanie's voice, the sense that what I'd so long feared, without words, was forming before me. Is this about the disappearances in the park? I asked. I heard it was drugs, or trafficking. That's the theory the police have been coming to us with, said Melanie, frankly. And trust me, there's zero evidence of that. But I and plenty of other people have seen things here that might be explained in, uh, less straightforward ways. I glanced around the office, relieved that none of the other workers were paying attention. Such as? I prompted. Melanie cleared her throat, a smoker's cough. This is going to sound really strange, but here it is. There are. Supernatural happenings here, is the only way I can put it. Everyone has their own idea of what's going on, out in Walpurgis town the residents are mostly old European settler families, and they brought a lot of their old myths over with them. Or contextualized what they saw with those stories, I guess. My nanny used to tell me about fey folk that lived in caves and burrows, how they were just straight up mean and hateful to people that came across them. Sometimes they'd steal their possessions, other times the people themselves. And they'd leave their own behind in their places, changelings, I think they're called. They're usually sick, in all the stories. Obviously I used to think it was all horse shit, but working here? Seeing the missing folk that turn up. Strange? I don't know. There's something here, but I wouldn't call them fairies. Whatever it is feels older than that. The phone felt slippery in my hand, as though it were a bloodied bone I held in place of metal and plastic. Like I said, Melanie stated, I'm really not supposed to talk about this. There's really no proof at all, so I could get in a lot of trouble for bringing it up with you. Anyway, you probably think I'm nuts. No, I whispered, so quietly I doubt she heard my voice. I don't. Go on. Clearly relieved, the young ranger continued with a renewed confidence. I had such a bad feeling when that teacher called the ranger station yesterday. I always do when we have one of our weird cases come up. I was told your little girl had gone wandering by the lakeside, so I checked there first, then headed out across a nearby grassland area, which is also pretty well known for reports. When I saw that burrow, to be honest, I wanted to turn back. We all avoid them, usually. Leave them well alone. But on the off chance a kid really had fallen down there I shone my flashlight down the hole, feeling sure as hell something bad was going to happen to me for poking around. Right away I saw a little girl looking right up at me, not saying a word, 
just staring. Her eyes didn't look right to me, and she didn't talk, or yell, or anything. Just stood there like a rat when you turn the light on in the kitchen. Not used to people at all. I would have backed off and gotten out of there, but that teacher came running up behind me. Clearly figured from the way I was bent over I'd found something. I couldn't walk away then, obviously, nothing I could do but pull the kid out of the burrow and take her over to the ranger station. She was acting wild, didn't know anybody she saw. I pulled Diane to one side with my concerns, but she didn't want to know. We've got to hand her over, she said to me. What do you want me to do? Throw her back? Come on. Then my shift was over, and there was nothing I could do. I was up all night thinking about it. I don't know if I'm even doing the right thing calling you to tell you all this. You are, I said. You did. I hung up, and sat with my face in my hands, like a scene from a melodrama, yet feeling nothing of that passion, nothing but the sureness of what I must do. At the end of the school day I went to pick up the child. As I'd anticipated Miss Paxton was standing with it at the gates, her mouth pressed into a line as thin and white as a chalk drawing. Hi, she said, faintly. Can we talk? Laney's been having some difficulties at school today. Of course she has, I cut in, sharply. And we both know why that is, don't we? The teacher looked taken aback, a guilty avoidance in her eyes. I looked at the child, which seemed even less a fit in its own skin than ever, flinching and glaring at every passerby. I gazed hard at the odd little face, the clawing hands with dirt under the nails. Let's go, I said, and the child followed, if only in that it knew, in some base manner, that I was its caretaker here, above earth. I drove out to the national park without even stopping at home first, having already been by to pick up a change of clothes and a spade, which I had packed in a canvas bag in order to be less conspicuous. The sun was a low, yellow-red stain against the sky, looking like blood in egg yolk as I tumbled the child out of the car and ushered it out onto the trail. The light imprinted itself on the edges of my vision as we walked, turning all I saw that same shade. I had a map of the park with me, which was easy enough to follow. Laney's class hadn't ventured particularly far out, only a couple of hours along one well-used path. Whether or not the child knew then where I was taking it I don't know, it stumbled at the end of my arm with the same fussing displeasure with which it seemed to regard all things. The lake came into view, and the mountain range beyond it. To the right lay a stretch of grass so flat it was like absinthe spilled across a desktop, intimidating in the vastness of its plains. This was where the ranger, Melanie, had found the child dressed in my daughter's clothes, this was where the burrow dwellers lived, the old mischiefs of Walpurgis legend. I should have laughed to find myself believing in such myths without question, but I had seen this creature devour dirt and stones, could feel, now, with a firm conviction, the watchful, humming presence of something underfoot, far, far down. Heading out there I hadn't expected to come across a burrow, the chance of doing so in such grand terrain was inconceivable. Yet the park seemed full of such unlikely details, for after a further twenty-minute excursion I nearly found myself tumbling down into a pit much like that which Melanie had described. I stood at the mouth of it, feeling, as I peered down, the same crushing numbness that had gripped me since the telephone call in the office. Grief, grief without hope of an end was that draining absence, and yet it was through that very hope that I was there. Look, I said, to the child. That's where you came from. I want you to go back down there and give me my daughter. I don't know why I thought it would understand me. Its white blue eyes were lifeless but for the captured flare of the sun, its mouth slack, speechless. The young ranger had said the burrower dwellers left their sick in place of the people they took, this creature was surely one of them, insensible to anything that was said to it. That, or like any animal it only heard my voice as a series of meaningless sounds. Either way, it could not respond to me, could not give me what I asked for. I looked at the stranger for a long moment, glancing over my shoulder and all about us, seeing no one else in view at this odd hour. Then, 
With a quick motion I couldn't take back, I stepped up behind the child and shoved it down into the burrow with both hands, glad that its scrabbling attempts to clamber back up the crumbling sides only pulled grass and dirt down on top of it. I heard it moving at the bottom of the pit, scratching with its fingernails, and took the spade out of my bag. If the child made any headway up the sloping side of the burrow I would push it back down, I decided, repeating the act as often as I had to until the ones that had sent it above ground returned my laney to me. Surely they had her, still, I told myself, had kept her like a pet in their warrens, a thievery that might be reversed. Yet as I sat on the grass by the burrow, waiting, waiting, I began to consider, with all the imaginative plenty of dread, the possibility that something more terrible than merely being taken might have befallen my daughter. As night fell, and the cold, and the dark, and the silence provoked me, I at last began to wonder if the young ranger and I had been mistaken. Perhaps the little girl I had thrown down into the hole in the earth had been my daughter, after all. I'm Aaliyah, a seasoned hiker with a penchant for exploring the remote wilderness. My latest adventure began with anticipation as I ventured into the heart of this untamed region. Armed with a backpack and hiking gear, I embarked on a multi-day trek through dense forests, steep mountains, and serene lakeshores. The initial days of my journey were as expected, demanding hikes, peaceful campfires, and the soothing sounds of nature. It was an adventure that rekindled my connection with the wild, offering freedom and self-discovery. Yet, as days turned into nights, an unsettling shift occurred. On the fourth day, an ominous presence cloaked the once familiar sounds of the wilderness. Birds fell silent, and the forest felt foreboding. Strange signs emerged, trees marked by claw-like scars and animal remains stripped to the bone. I realized I was no longer the apex predator, I had become prey. Fear gripped me, but my determination to find an exit pushed me forward. The sensation of being watched grew stronger, and guttural growls haunted the eerie silence. My flashlight and knife offered fragile comfort. Finally, I reached a cliff's summit, glimpsing the lurking predator below, an elusive and formidable presence. With nowhere to go, it retreated into the wilderness. Exhausted yet resolute, I continued, returning to civilization with a story of survival, a testament to the unbreakable spirit of a solitary hiker in the Pacific Northwest's wilderness. Back in 1957 my mother, father, and little sister who was six were picnicking near Rouse's Point, New York on the shore of Lake Champlain. At one point my sister walked to the end of a dock and looked into the water. She turned to leave and heard a noise behind her. She turned and saw two black webbed hands appear at the end of the dock. Then suddenly a child-size head appeared. At this point, she screamed and ran back to us and told us what she saw. Her scream had already alarmed us and we were running towards her to see what was wrong. After she told us what happened, my father told us to stay here and went to inspect the dock where he found two web-like handprints at its end. Well, the picnic was over. Many times I heard my father relate this story to friends and relatives. Sometimes they would nod their heads and recount their odd stories of the lake. Two more things, years later when my sister saw the old movie The Creature from the Black Lagoon she swears that it was similar to the creature she saw that day. When my father, who liked to fish on the lake, passed away, I was going through his belongings to find, at the bottom of his tackle box, a loaded .45 caliber pistol. Odd for a tackle box but I guess he thought better safe than sorry. I'm 70 and it makes no difference to me if you believe this story or not, I'm just relating what happened years ago while on a picnic. Thank you. I recently had an interesting encounter in the forest with my girlfriend. We go to this place as a gathering spot, to heal, to learn. I've always had a relationship with Bankhead National Forest in Alabama. From the first time I visited the place, I felt the profound spiritual essence of the forest. 
I have often been able to bond with the forest creatures there. On the most recent trip, we went with no dogs and were not that well prepared. By the time we were ready to leave the back falls it was already getting dark. We had to really hustle to get out of the forest and back up to the trailhead leading back to the car. At one point all our lights went out and phones died. It's at this critical point on the trail where we have to take a side trail off the marked trail to get back up to the car. Luckily we spot the exit and make our way back up hills towards the car. Right as we make it out of the forest and can see the last bit of sunlight through the low branches to guide us out, and in this final moment of the trip a noise I can't quite place nor accurately describe reverberated through the forest. What sounded like an Asgard plasma beam dropping through the canopy of the forest, trees crashing and limbs breaking, and then we heard the creature itself let out something like a large animal's snort combined with a demon's laugh. Never heard anything like this at Bankhead. My first thought was Skinwalker. We both felt like we were being watched for a time down by the water. Oh man. My step bro and I did this a lot. We've seen the gambit from ball lightning, to ghost lanterns drifting through fields. We heard drum beats in the night, and even got locked into a barn when no one else was around. Ty was back before he nearly drank himself to death. Creepiest thing I've seen on a night hike though. Herm. Gonna give this one to the hunting lodge. So, my bro and I sat on this fence about a half mile put from the lodge at night and we would just talk about life. Being in the middle of nowhere, the moon lit things up just enough that you could see things mostly clearly. Well as we are talking, this light suddenly turns on in the smallest room of the lodge. This room is at the end of a hallway too, and is one that's notorious for shit going down in. We're talking housekeepers hearing boot steps coming down the hall towards the room, radios turning on and off, the works. Well, on goes the light. We go quiet and stare at it. You see that too? Yep. It just turned on, right? Yep. We watch for a long time, debating on if we should investigate. We decide not to, as the folks leasing the lodge don't really like us. No need to spook some random person at 2am we watched that thing for a solid hour or so, and then suddenly it turned off. Alright. Cool. Party's over. Next night comes around and same thing, only this time we're armed with knowledge. We have confirmed via the ranch foreman that no is there. He swung by to check after hearing our story. Well we decided to be brave. We went to check it out. We has to stand on tippy toes to peer in the window. And F me if it isn't the damn TV, on a static channel. We did not like that. We buggered right out of there. Right when we got back to our good old fence posts, the thing turned off. F this. We tell the foreman the next day, who happens to be my grandfather. He stares at us, as if calculating his response. Not possible. I turned the power off yesterday. Tree was rubbing on the lines and causing sparks. Almost caused a fire. When we turn off power, we legitimately kill it. As in, the lines going into the house were dead, thanks to a kill switch installed in key locations by PGE. My grandfather checked the place out after that, couldn't get the TV to turn on. He advised us to just steer clear for a bit. We went out again, after a few nights of avoiding our nighttime hikes. Nothing happened until we went to hike home. Suddenly the light came on. That was the last time we saw that static light from the TV. But man did it leave us not wanting to see it ever again. My dad recently told me this story and I was just amazed. I thought you would like to hear it. When I was young, about three or so, I was hospitalized and near death. I had a fever that just would not break and was passed out for most of the hospitalization. My dad, who has always been religious, wanted the hospital's priest to come say a prayer for me. So, the priest comes to pray for me but, something's not right about the guy. He never gives his name and has no Bible. He says the entire prayer in Latin and blesses me. Now, 
My parents aren't married yet and since the priest is there, they ask why they haven't been able to have another child yet. They had been trying for about a year with no luck. The priest tells them that they won't have another child until they're married. The priest leaves after that and an hour later my fever breaks. The next day the hospital's priest comes to the room to say a prayer for me. My dad is confused and tells the man that someone had already come the day before, to which the man replies that no priests were on duty the day before. He checked with all of the hospital staff and their visitation book and everything, nothing turned up. No priest was in the previous day. He searched for years to find this priest that prayed for me and he never found a single trace of him anywhere. A month after my mom and dad got married, my mom got pregnant with my brother. So, we'll never know who the mysterious man was but, I like to think he's my guardian angel, and he still remains with me. To this day my dad still has found no record of him, not even someone who looks like him. Someone was looking out for me that day though. I just wish I knew who. It's not exactly a hiking story, but right when I graduated high school, before me, three of my close friends, and one of those friends' girlfriend, went off to different schools, the military, we decided to go camp at Yellowstone. We were still early in the season, so there was nobody at our campsite. The first two days we drove and hiked around, looking at geysers and springs and all the natural wonder, and our nights we spent by the fire in shorts and t-shirts getting drunk. Thanks to one of our friends being a camp food connoisseur, we ate a lot of amazing food that I didn't even know could be made by campfire. The third night started like the previous two. It was warm, and we were drinking, and all was well. I woke up at around 3.30 in the morning because there was something wet and cold on my face. Turns out it snowed so hard in the two hours we'd been asleep that the tent I was in collapsed. The wet and cold was the tent's roof on my face. I woke everyone up, and we dug each other out and reset our tents. I figured now was as good a time as any to walk over to the bathroom, which was I'd say about the equivalent of two blocks away from our campsite. I should note, I would not consider myself a woodsman. I'm comfortable in the outdoors, probably more than most people. At that time in my life, I was an avid fisherman and a competent hunter, but I was very concerned about the wildlife. Bears in particular. There are signs everywhere in Yellowstone about the wildlife that will kill you. Don't touch the bears. They will kill you. Don't touch the bison. They will kill you. Don't touch the deer. They will kill you. Hell, there are signs that even tell you not to touch the ground because you could fall through and be acid boiled to death. Each sign comes complete with the bathroom guy illustration of why each thing is dangerous. The bison one I remember most is great, featuring a blocky bison tossing a guy into the air. The bison had speed lines behind it. I remember that very clearly. Anyway, I'm walking to the bathroom. It's dead quiet, and there's about four inches of heavy, wet, snow on the ground. All I can hear is my footsteps, and then, as I walked, I started hearing something behind me. It sounded like much more careful footsteps. Like something was conscious of the noise it was making as I moved through this kind of wooded area. I would take a few steps and pause, listening, and sure enough, there was this pat 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 and then it would stop. I could see the brick bathroom structure, which was big enough for a men's and women's bathroom with each bathroom having, I'm guessing for the women's room, three stalls in it. So I take the F off, sprinting the last 100 or so feet. I fly through the door, slip and crash onto the floor, and then scramble to slam the door behind me and press myself against it. I thought for sure that a bear, or maybe a mountain lion was stalking me through the trees, and that I had just barely gotten away. I could only hope that my friends were as aware as me and would be able to get in the trucks or whatever. So there I was, sitting on the bathroom floor with my back pressed against the door. It was cold, it was dark, I was wet, and still very much freaked out. I checked my watch. I'd been bracing the door for about 15 minutes. I decided it'd probably be okay to stand up. Just as I stood up, 
There was this big thump and the door knocked against me. I screamed, both out of shock and because some part of my animal brain was like make noise. Become large. There were loud noises coming from the other side of the door and so I just carried on shouting and pressing against the door. Turns out it was my friend Nick. When I realized it was him, I sheepishly held the door for him and asked if anything followed him, and explained what I was doing. He said he didn't hear anything on his way in, but that didn't mean I was crazy for thinking something tried to follow me. Now a pair though, and emboldened, we decided we had to get back to the campsite and warn our other three compatriots. We set out slowly, carefully listening after our steps, straining to hear or see anything. We had flashlights, and the moon was clear and bright off the snow, but it felt like every tree hid something with teeth. It was then that I heard it again. I grabbed Nick's shoulder and he nodded, saying yeah. Yeah I heard it too. We paused, listening and watching. I was squeezing my flashlight so tight I could feel the metal gritting into my hand. We heard it again, closer this time, but we still didn't see anything. Do we run or what? I half whispered, half shouted, in the way that you do when you recognize you should be quiet, but can't contain the urgency of the statement. I don't know. I don't think so, said Nick. Among the five of us, I was the only one that wasn't an Eagle Scout. If Nick didn't know what to do, then I figured we were just done. I just thought that whatever came out of the dark was going to get bopped directly in the eye with my flashlight before it made a meal of me. Pat pat. It happened again. This time, right in front of me. I knew what the noise was now. It was clumps of wet snow falling out of the trees. Idiot is not a strong enough word for what I felt like. Me and Nick laughed it off, both making fun of me, but also relieved we didn't have to fight for our lives on some campground. Later that day we saw wolves hunting elk way off in the distance. We saw the Grand Prismatic Spring, and the various geysers and springs in the basin around it. A ranger came to our campsite and said that a bear had been seen in the area and we needed to be extra careful about putting out food and trash away tonight, but nothing came of it. It was a pretty good trip. I was living with my girlfriend in a nice little neighborhood that I later learned was in the wrong part of town. I walked by myself most nights, talking on the phone with my aunt as I did slow laps around the subdivision. That night, I had looped around the whole place once or twice, and was about 15 minutes away from home. I can remember that moment very well. I was on the sidewalk, crossing a driveway beneath a lamp post that lit up the nearby house, when I heard what was very clearly a dog growling from up the driveway, near the garage door. I grew up with big dogs. Roddies, Pits, and Germans. I know how territorial they are and I know that they can sometimes become more aggressive if you look at them, so I kept my head down and kept walking at the same pace, expecting that the dog would ignore me after I walked by. I told my aunt that there was a dog nearby, and she got really quiet. A lot of things went through my mind, but my brain just kept focusing on one thought, don't run. Just don't run, whatever you do. Punch, kick, scream, but don't run. I heard its collar jangle as it got up, and I could hear it trotting slowly behind me to catch up. I looked over my shoulder and saw two thick Rottweilers staring straight at me, walking next to each other on the sidewalk about 10 feet behind. I told my aunt that I'd call her back, but she refused to get off the phone. I walked, and they followed me. The next 10 minutes were the most terrified I have ever felt. In the moment, I was sure that they could tell how scared I was. By the time I turned onto the street where I lived, I was in tears. After she gave up on asking questions, my aunt kept telling me, it'll be okay. Just keep walking and stay calm. Can't say for sure I would have stayed calm without her. Those dogs followed me all the way to my front door, growling the whole time. I've lived with Rottweilers bigger than them, and never felt like I was in any danger but something instinctual told me that night that those dogs wanted to hurt me. I know for sure that I was not safe around them. Funny thing was, 
I drove by that house every day for almost a year and never saw those dogs again. I continued to walk at night and never encountered anything similar. I used to walk my dog, blown anima, up in the access roads for the power lines in the town. They're probably two to three miles long, have a lot of ledges and obstacles, you have a nice view of the town below, it's just a nice place to walk your dog or jog or whatever. It was technically a restricted area on at the entries on either side, but people with houses around them could easily walk in through the woods, as I did. I'd see other people here and they're walking their own dogs or jogging, but usually the same people. But it wasn't common to see people. So one day I'm walking my dog, big black lab, he was almost 120 pound but burly, not fat at all, but also the nicest and gentlest boy you'd ever meet, and he stops dead in his tracks and his ears perk up and he starts sniffing. Then he looks around behind me and starts staring. So I turn around and I see a disheveled, raggedy looking man sprinting toward us, probably 250 feet away. Then, when he sees me see him, he literally stops dead in his tracks and starts walking, as if I didn't just see him sprinting at me and he's trying to hide that he was just doing that. Now, I'm not at all trying to say I wasn't creeped, because I was, but with me fight, flight is pretty much always fight. So my brain starts going and I decide the smart thing to do is stay put and not run, let whoever this is know I have no reason to be afraid. So he approaches to talking distance and I wait for him to say something, I just stare at him holding the clip on the dogs, who is doing that soft, angry growl, where the hair on his back is standing up, by the way, and he never growled, at anyone, so now my guard is through the roof, leash. Big dog man, he says, he bite? Not as long as he's on the leash, I say, subtly playing with the clip on the leash with my thumb. Oh. Hey I'm looking for, generic store, is it that way? And he points. Yay. I say. So he walks off and I stood there watching him get way beyond any distance that he could run and catch up to me again. What he wanted I have no clue, but I'm guessing to club me in the back of the head and rob me. But my boy had my back. 